Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today, again, I'm joined by Greg Potter for another sleep clinic, which uh, I think these are going to go down incredibly well. The first one hasn't actually gone live yet on the recording of this, but I have a feeling these are going to be incredibly valuable. I know some of uh, the, the team at Revive Stronger have already checked this one out because they have early access to it. And they said the one that we just recorded was incredibly helpful and valuable. So um, at least from our side, Greg, and from me personally, uh, these I think are going to be super valuable for, valuable for people, especially because, I mean, there are a lot of questions that a lot of people have and we're going to have that resource for them. Is there anything, what's up on your end, Greg? You, you're good? How are things over there? Yeah, all Any updates? And nice to hear that positive feedback. I should probably clarify that the reason that we're recording this one shortly after the first is that we'd intended to get to about 10 questions first time around. And I'm so long-winded that we got to four or five. But yes, all is well. And for people who are tuning in, Steve currently has COVID-19. So <laughs> I think I should probably be asking you that question. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually like last time, I feel really hot and sweaty, but I think that's because I, I just did a deload session from behind me, you can see. Uh, so that all went all right. And I did a little bit of posing and stuff. So I'm, I'm getting there to normality and my sleep. Hilariously, last time I recorded it, I literally that night was when I had an awful night's sleep and I had no idea it was COVID related. And it clearly was and nothing down to my sleep hygiene or anything like that. But my sleep's been far, far better since. And hell, it makes a big difference because I felt awful on the Thursday, mostly just huge fatigue from, well, sleep and also, I mean, due to having COVID. So anyway, to go on with the questions from today, we have the first one, which I think, yeah, a lot of people have this question. How do wearables identify different sleep stages and how accurate are trackers in general? So what I'll do is I'll begin by discussing what those sleep stages are. And you might have to remind me about the original question at some point, because one thing I want to do with these answers is cover each question in sufficient detail that we don't need to revisit it later. So when we talk about sleep stages, what exactly are we discussing? During wakefulness, there are certain patterns of electrical, electrical activity in the brain. And by analogy, it's a bit like people chatting before a football match in a crowd. Lots of people saying things, there's no coherent sound, people speaking at different frequencies, at different speeds, and so on. And that will change dramatically over the course of sleep, as I'll get to. But briefly, when we talk about sleep stages, we can divide them into two categories. One is so-called non-rapid eye movement sleep or NREM sleep. And the other is rapid eye movement sleep, which is so named because of the way that the eyes move from side to side during that stage of sleep. And we cycle through these two different discrete stages of sleep, roughly every 90 minutes or so over the course of the night, such that most adults will have four or five of these 90 minute cycles per night. And the proportion of each 90 minute cycle that we spend in REM sleep increases over the course of the night. Now, NREM sleep can be further divided 
into three stages. It used to be divided into four stages, but now stages three and four are lumped together into one. And you can think of the first stage of sleep, so NREM1, as being a bit like a bridge to sleep. And one characteristic feature of this stage of sleep is these slow eye movements that take place. That stage doesn't last long, and we quite quickly move into stage two sleep. And the progression from stage one to two to three is characterized by an increasing depth of sleep, by which I mean that it's harder to wake somebody from that type of sleep. Not only that, but breathing rate slows during this time, heart rate drops, and body temperature falls as well. Stage two sleep is the stage of sleep in which we spend the most time each evening. And it has a couple of distinct features. One is called sleep spindles, and another is called K-complexes. And these might sometimes occur in other stage of sleep, but it's during stage two sleep that these primarily occur. And sleep spindles are basically bursts of oscillations, if you look at the electrical activity of the brain, of about 10 to 15 hertz, so 10 to 15 times per second. And these seem to be important to various things. So one is that they help people stay asleep. They help stabilize sleep. And another key feature relates to learning. So while we're awake each day interacting with the world, there is an increase in the synaptic strength between various different neurons in the brain. And the problem with that is that it takes up energy and it takes up real estate in the brain. So quite quickly, your ability to learn new things becomes saturated. So during sleep, you need to selectively reduce the strength of some of those connections so that you only hold on to the most important information and so that you boost your brain's energy stores the next day. And sleep spindles seem to be quite important for this. And there's another type of brainwave called a sharp wave ripple, which is a very high frequency brainwave that is coupled to it happens at the same time as sleep spindles, but also seems to be important to this process. Not only that, but sleep spindles are important to consolidating memories. And one interesting thing is that if you look at patterns of electrical activity in the brain while you're learning a task, then you see certain neuronal circuits light up. And when you then look at activity in the brain during sleep, you see sleep spindles specifically tend to cluster in those circuits. And the, the reason for that, of course, relates to learning. And sleep spindles seem to be very important to transferring learned information from a short-term limited capacity storage depot called the hippocampus, which is part of the limbic system in the brain. You can think of this as being a bit like a USB card. It's, it's fine at storing information in the short term, but you can only store so much there. And these sleep spindles help transfer that information to other parts of the brain, to the neocortex, which is more like a long-term memory storage vault so you can think of that as being like a hard drive for example so basically during this stage of sleep 
you see activity that took place while learning something being replayed at very high speed in the hippocampus and then these sleep spindles help shift it into those long-term storage depots and the sleep spindles are very important to what's known as plasticity in the brain which basically refers to the fact that the brain can be rewired in the same way that if you warm up plastic it becomes pliable but over time as it cools down it starts to take on a new shape and settle in that shape so in the brain plasticity means that yes you can rewire it but then without continued stimuli the the shape of the brain if you will will tend to settle in that new shape and then importantly once you've learned that new, new material and those memories have been, become consolidated, you no longer have to rely on that activity in the hippocampus to recite those memories. Instead, that depends on activity in those parts of the neocortex to which those memories have been transferred. Then another type of brainwave that predominates during the stage of sleep is known as a K-complex. And if you look at an EEG, which plots out the electrical activity in the brain then these are basically the largest singular waveforms that you would see on an EEG and they can be provoked by certain slightly disruptive stimuli so if for example Steve your partner nudged you in the middle of the night while you were lying in bed then your brain would detect that and you'd probably experience one of those k-complexes and what would actually happen in response to that is that if your brain perceives that as not being a threatening stimulus, then it would actually protect your sleep and you would see a temporary increase in the depth of sleep. So you can think of these as being like a detect and protect mechanism. And that also has some implications for trying to improve sleep because the point is that if you can provide yourself with certain stimuli during the stage of sleep that trigger K-complexes, then you can deepen sleep and perhaps have some positive effects on things like memory and whatnot. So that's stage two sleep. Then the next stage of sleep, the deeper stage of sleep, stage three sleep is also known as slow wave sleep. And going back to the football crowd analogy, this stage of sleep is a bit like everyone in the crowd now chanting in unison. So what you see is you see these high amplitude, slow oscillations in the brain, starting a couple of inches or so above the nose, and then sweeping back through the brain slowly. And this stage of sleep is clearly very important to lots of different things. And it predominates early in the evening. So you get most of this during maybe your, your first three cycles of sleep. And by the fourth and fifth cycle there might not be any slow wave sleep whatsoever and interestingly it's this stage of sleep that the brain seems to protect when you've lost sleep so steve if you deprived yourself of sleep tonight would be a terrible idea if you have COVID-19 then tomorrow night you would see a particular increase in slow wave activity within your sleep and that probably speaks to the relative importance of this stage of sleep this type of slow wave sleep is very important to various housekeeping functions. And 
relevant to the listeners. One of these is the restoration of things like connective tissue in the body. So it's during this stage of sleep that our bodies synthesize much of their growth hormone and release that growth hormone from the pituitary each night. That happens in a pulsatile fashion. And that, of course, is involved not only in remodeling connective tissues, but it's very important to things like brain health too and to neuronal structure as well. Then there is the brain's immune system. And many people will have heard of the lymphatic system, which is key to your immune system. The brain has its own so-called glymphatic system. And the reason it was named as such is that it's the glial cells in the brain that seem to be particularly important within this. So during slow wave sleep, what happens is there's an increase in the space between cells in the brain. And as a result of that, cerebrospinal fluid can enter the interstitial space. And what happens is, because there are those large slow waves, there are corresponding changes in blood flow. And these changes in blood flow lead to changes in cerebrospinal fluid flow through these parts of the brain. And it's this flow of that fluid that helps wash metabolic debris that's accumulated during wakefulness out of the spaces. So it's a bit like the sewage system opening up and that letting your brain wash all of the rubbish out of those spaces that's accumulated as people have been busy each day and as people have been putting things in the sewage system. So that seems to be very important ultimately to things like risk of neurodegenerative diseases because if you look at some of these things that accumulate during wakefulness they include things such as beta amyloid and that's implicated in alzheimer's disease development interestingly i was just reading an article today about a new alzheimer's drug that's being released which is trying to specifically target beta amyloid plaques in the brain and i'm not sure that that's going to be a particularly effective drug because i think the Beta amyloid might be an innocent bystander, but that's tangent that we don't need to go into. Another housekeeping function that this stage of sleep is very important for is glucose metabolism. And interesting, if you selectively deprive somebody of slow wave sleep, so if you're monitoring their brain during sleep and you identified when they're in this deeper stage of sleep, and then you use some stimulus to wake them from that type of sleep, but over the course of the whole sleep period, they get the same total amount of sleep as normal then you see a dose-dependent reduction in insulin sensitivity according to how much you deprive somebody of this stage of sleep. So clearly it's very important to blood sugar regulation and likely ultimately important to things like risk of diabetes too. Another key benefit of this stage of sleep is a boost in immune function in general. So I mentioned the brain previously, and I also alluded to the fact that slow waves are important to the formation of memories in the brain. This stage of sleep is also important the formation of memory in the immune system. So as we interact with the world during the day, we get exposed to various pathogens. These foreign proteins, antigens, are taken up by certain cells in the immune system. And these antigens then need to be presented to certain cells so that they 
ultimately can lead to the formation of new antibodies by T cells, B cells, and in the so-called adaptive part of the immune system. And it's during slow wave sleep that that transfer of information from that short-term depot to ultimately T cell and B cell antibody production seems to take place. So for you right now, Steve, this stage of sleep is, is really important. I don't want to say that's put any pressure on you, but doing what you can to boost this type of sleep is, is going to be helpful. So it's good that you're being physically active right now. Then another key benefit of the stage of sleep, as I said, is memory formation. I just want to add one specific detail, which is that slow wave sleep seems to be particularly helpful to memorizing the right answer for something. So if you're doing an exam and it wasn't a multiple choice questionnaire test and you had to know the answer off the top of your head, this stage of sleep is most likely to get you to that answer. And then finally, what will happen is you typically go from stage one to stage two to stage three, and then you might ascend to a, a lighter stage of sleep again, and then you go into rapid eye movement sleep. And it's a very strange stage of sleep in some ways. It's sometimes known as paradoxical sleep because paradoxically, the activity in the brain in some ways looks quite similar to how it looks during wakefulness. But parts of the brain can be as much as 30% more metabolically active during REM sleep compared to wakefulness. And one of the interesting things about REM sleep is that while humans get less sleep than other primates, other primates might get 10 to 15 hours of sleep per 24 hours. We have relatively more REM sleep. So we probably get 20 to 25% of our sleep as REM sleep on average in a healthy young adult. Whereas in other primates, that number is probably closer to 10%. And so that suggests that it might have been advantageous for us in some ways, given that in evolutionary terms, we've been so successful relative to other animals and other primates. And during the stage of sleep, part of the brain that's involved in rational decision-making, the brain CEO, if you like, largely goes offline. And that probably partly explains why this stage of sleep can be so bizarre to experience, why dreams are frankly pretty mental at times. And it's very important to emotion regulation, which we'll probably come back to later. And not only that, but it seems to be important to things like creativity, and I mentioned earlier that slow wave sleep is key to memorizing the one right answer. Intriguingly, REM sleep seems to be very important to understanding the gist of things. So if you're doing a multiple choice questionnaire and you weren't quite sure what the answer was, but you had some inkling as to what it was, it's probably REM sleep that's most likely to get you to the right answer in that particular context. And then finally, I recently read a book by... Antonio Zadra and Robert Stickgold called When Brains Dreams. Brilliant book if anyone wants to read it. And I don't recommend many sleep books. I frankly don't read many sleep books because I spend more time reading papers about sleep. But in that book, they present a model known as Next Up, network exploration to understand possibilities. And I found it very compelling, but one of the central points that they make 
is that REM sleep seems to be particularly important to extracting new knowledge from existing information by trying to explore weak associations between something that you just learned and something way back in the depths of your memory. So because your body is in this safe space in which it's paralyzed, your muscles are paralyzed, that is, so that you don't act out your dreams, your brain can, can start to look for these very perhaps counterintuitive associations with existing information. And then finally, finally, in terms of physical processes that take place during REM sleep, there are a few pretty obvious ones. So one is that men get erections if their vascular system is healthy. Women experience some clitoral swelling at this time. There is a very large fluctuation in heart rate and how quickly we breathe during REM sleep too. There are those eye movements that I mentioned earlier. And frankly, we don't understand all the details as to why those things happen. But certainly, this stage of sleep does seem to be important to things like cardiovascular health. So with that said, I could then go into the question about wearables and, and how accurate they are. But I don't know if you want to pick up on anything in there, Steve. Yeah, it was just, I think, incredibly uh, an incredible amount of detail and a really good background, something probably... I mean, I feel like I have a handle on sleep, but mostly just the practical application. When it comes to this sort of stuff, this is like another level. And I'd have to listen to that a few times to get a real handle on it. I'm sure the listeners would be the same. Do you have, I don't know if there's a way of summarizing kind of what each stage is generally for. Is there, a, is there can you do that? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say non-REM sleep think of it as being important for physical restoration, memorizing the one right thing, doing away with unnecessary information, and then REM sleep as being important to emotional regulation, creativity, and making better sense of the world. Cool. Yeah, no, that's very, very helpful. And yeah, you'll get to the next part of the question. I just pulled up my Fitbit, which gives me kind of like, I don't know, it tries to give me the data. So I'm, I'm interested to see how you go here. There was one other thing was, I don't know if you, you probably have heard this story, Greg. I don't know who it was, but there was some inventor or something along these lines who used to try and wake him up in a certain stage of sleep to try and get those kind of eureka moments. Do you know what I'm referring to there? I just remember yeah, hearing it somewhere. Yeah, there, there are a few famous examples of this. So one was Mendeley in the periodic table. And then, so supposedly he, he saw the periodic table in his dreams and he then basically put it together off the back of that dream. And another is that some people have tried to leverage their dreams to improve things like their creativity and to spark new ideas. And we can come back to that later, but a famous instance of this is... Fleming, who invented the incandescent light bulb in the late 19th century. And what he would do is he would gently grasp a spoon in his hand as he lay back comfortably in the afternoon 
And then as he nodded off, the spoon would drop and it would wake him up. And as he was going through that process, he'd be thinking about the problem that he was trying to solve. And as, as we'll come to later, there, there probably are some ways that you can use REM sleep to try and come up with solutions to problems that you're currently finding intractable. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. That's the one I remember. So yeah, it's, it's kind of hilarious, but also, I mean, ingenious at the same time in, in many ways. But we're going to the next question, which was, how do wearable, wearables identify different sleep stages and how accurate are trackers? So the way that I would go about explaining this is by looking at the gold standard way of assessing sleep, which is known as polysomnography or PSG. And the reason is that the wearables try and look at some of the same things that are studied in PSG to then predict whether somebody is in NREM stage two or rapid eye movement sleep or awake and so on. And PSG is, is used to diagnose various sleep disorders and to rule out some problems too. It seems to be pretty accurate, but obviously it's not practical and it's pretty uncomfortable and invasive. Interestingly though, a lot of people think that people sleep in a lab when they're hooked up with all these sensors is relatively representative of how they sleep in the real world too. But just briefly, some of the things that are looked at during PSG include things like patterns of electrical activity in the brain. So electroencephalography, EEG is used. And there are electrodes all over the head on top of the scalp, not just on the, on the forehead. Another is electrocardiography, ECG. I mentioned that during REM sleep, there can be quite rapid fluctuations in heart rate, whereas as you progress through the stages of non-REM sleep, so you go from stage one to stage two to stage three, you generally see a reduction in heart rate. So based on that, you would assume that looking at someone's heart rate, you might be able to infer something about which stage of sleep they're in or whether they're awake. Then another one is pulse oximetry. So how well oxygenated somebody's blood is. Another is respiration. So breathing, and that can be looked at in a few different ways, but it's often studied by looking at airflow through the nose. Then there is electrical activity in the muscles, electromyography, EMG. And typically this would be studied at the chin and then also the anterior tibialis on, on, the front of the on the front of the shin. The reason being that one condition that sleep researchers would want to rule out is whether somebody has some sort of periodic limb movement disorder. So restless leg syndrome, for example, in which they're kicking while asleep. And importantly, so turning now to sleep trackers, the first wearable sleep tracking devices just used movement. So they were single sensor devices that used accelerometry in three planes, so triaxial accelerometry. And these types of devices were generally quite good at 
identifying if somebody was asleep. So they're quite sensitive to sleep, but they weren't so good at identifying if somebody was lying in bed, but still. So they weren't very specific to identifying wakefulness. And what's happened since then is that the devices now measure more and more different types of signals from the body. So for example, one of them that some have is a gyroscope, which can identify posture. So that could be helpful if you're trying to encourage somebody to stop spending so much time sitting down, for instance. It can also be very helpful if somebody is, say, a supine sleeper, so they sleep on their back and they have sleep apnea because sleeping on the back would tend to exacerbate the sleep apnea, those obstructions in the upper airway that can lead to all sorts of problems. Then there is pulse rate and variability. Again, I say pulse rate because the wearables typically won't assess the heart directly, but they'll measure the pulse at the wrist or the finger. And ECG is the gold standard, but most wearables will use something called pulse plethysmography, PPG. And that type of technology actually seems to be quite good at assessing pulse. I'll, I'll come back to that later. Another one that they will look at is body temperature. And body temperature is a really interesting one because if you look at someone's core body temperature, then as we've discussed previously when talking about circadian system and exercise, Steve, there's this nice high amplitude core body temperature rhythm such that there's an adhere shortly before waking in the morning. And then there's a peak in core body temperature, typically in the late biological afternoon. So for a lot of people, that's around 6 p.m. And it's at that time of day when people tend to be strongest. If you look, for example, at Olympic records and world records in certain sports, then they tend to cluster in the late afternoon and early evening for that reason, particularly in strength and power sports. But the temperature of the skin also has a clear 24-hour rhythm each day, but it's out of phase with the temperature of the core, such that as bedtime approaches, your core body temperature is going down, but your skin temperature is actually going up. And we actually do various things in anticipation of bed each night that tend to raise skin temperature and thereby promote sleepiness. So for example, lying down, so just lying supine, raises skin temperature. Turning off the lights tends to support melatonin synthesis, which raises skin temperature. So by monitoring skin temperature, these devices might be able to infer something about circadian rhythms and thereby sleep as well. But obviously, skin temperature is a pretty noisy measurement because it's subject to changes in environmental ambient temperature as well. And also, we can go out and exercise, for example, and dramatically affect our skin temperature in a short period. We're just going to confound those measures. And then there is electrodermal activity, so how well the skin conducts electricity. Some of the trackers look at that, and that seems to be independently useful, helping to stage sleep. And then while most wearables that people use might be wrist-worn, some will be finger-worn, there are some head-worn devices too, and these measure EEG, but they don't measure scalp EEG all over the head necessarily. They might just measure forehead EEG, 
And the device I'm thinking of specifically is called the Dream 2 headband. And Steve, I can't remember if I mentioned that to you before, but we'll come back to it because it's a really interesting product. And then also some devices will measure things like sound because if they can detect snoring, then that might be useful information. And others might have light sensors. So if you're trying to spend more time outdoors in bright daylight each day, then those could be handy, but that type of information probably won't be used so much in, in staging sleep. So with that said, I've just mentioned that there are also so-called nearables. So we have wearables and then we have nearables, which might be something that sits by your bed, like a ResMed S Plus that uses radio waves to identify changes in movement over the course of the night and also measures ambient temperature and noise. And those movements over the course of the night can apparently help monitor sleep, identify whether somebody is asleep or awake. And then there's the Apple Bedit product, which is a, a thin strip that sits beneath you while you sleep. And it can measure things like heart rates and movement and uses that information to score sleep too. Now, with all of that said, the actual ways that the products take that information from the different sensors built into them and score sleep stages depends on the device, of course. And we don't know much about how the different manufacturers do that. This is truly a black box situation. What we do know is that the accuracy of the devices is getting better over time. And I think a lot of the current devices are actually better than some research devices that you use. So I'm not referring to PSG there. I'm referring to something known as actimetry, which are just these wrist-worn devices that have been used for decades in sleep research, typically in free living situations, and they're single sensor, or maybe they measure just heart rate and movement and use that information to look at whether somebody's likely to be awake or asleep. Can be really helpful. I think a lot of the consumer devices are now actually better than those devices. Again, probably depends on the context. Now, with that said, I think certain devices, of course, have some advantages. And, and there has been some interesting research recently looking at the utility of them in different situations. I mentioned the Dream 2 headband. And I think if I was looking for a device that was as accurate as possible in scoring my sleep, I'd probably use that of the different consumer devices. It's expensive, but it's a really neat product. So compared to PSG, it scores sleep stages very well, it seems. It also has some helpful features. One is the accompanying app uses elements of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which we discussed in the last podcast to help people sleep better. Another is that you can use it to play yourself relaxing sounds during sleep, but not by way of playing sound out loud. Instead, it uses bone conduction technology to deliver those sounds to you. So it wouldn't therefore disturb your bed partner, for example. And then it also has positional sensors. So it can tell you at this time during the night, you were lying on your left side. At this time, you were lying on your back and so on. So I think all of those features make it a really helpful device. It's just expensive and it's not widely available, especially on this side of the pond because it's a US-based company. I think finger-worn devices have certain advantages. One is the form factor and the fact that they fit the finger very snugly. Obviously, one advantage of rings is that people don't tend to take them off so much, but another 
is that because of that snug fit, they probably get quite good pulse rate data. The fidelity of that information is probably relatively high. And aura rings have been used to, for example, identify whether somebody has an arrhythmia. So it could be helpful in disease forecasting. And there's also been a little bit of work coming out recently looking at whether you can take data from the O-rings and use it to predict whether somebody has COVID-19, for example. Then there's quite a lot of work on the Apple Watch right now. Seems to be quite good at assessing heart rate and things. There was a nice study published recently looking at using the Apple Watch to determine circadian phase. So whether somebody is more of a morning lark or a night owl, it probably does that to within one hour or so of the gold standard way of assessing circadian phase. So that's cool. And then also there's been some work recently looking at the, the whoop strap and whether the feedback that that device gives influences people's sleep. And it's a very, very small scale, very short term study, but basically over the space of a week or two, the feedback seemed to slightly improve subjective sleep quality. So I, I think for, for, for a lot of people, these types of devices could improve sleep. The problem is that if your sleep is not like the people whose data the devices algorithms are trained on, the devices won't be so accurate for you. So if you have restless leg syndrome, you kick your legs during the night, probably be scored as being awake. If you have insomnia and you're lying in bed still, but awake, you'll probably be scored as being asleep. But as things progress over time, I think that eventually there's no reason to think that the devices couldn't be as good as PSG. They're going in the right direction. They're not perfect, but they have their uses. Really, really nicely done. Very, very comprehensive, which is always a good thing. And I didn't actually, I, we may have discussed the dream too, or something like it before. Uh, but it's interesting to know that something like that is available. And I, I think we may have even discussed this before, Greg, but I think it's always worth discussing it again or if uh, maybe you've got some new thoughts on it but i always think like data for data's sake isn't particularly helpful and it's only as good as the person viewing the data and don't know doing whatever they need to with it uh, any of these devices getting it sounded like maybe the whoop is giving some feedback and some suggestions or something but uh for example like my fitbit it doesn't give me a like it doesn't give me a night reading of data and then says oh try this 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 to improve your I don't know, whatever REM sleep or whatever I'm a bit low on. Uh, what do you think to that? And and I guess, are they accurate enough to be able to, like you may be getting enough REM sleep, but the device is now sensing that you aren't. And so it may be even, don't know, giving you false practical advice even, I'm not sure. Yeah, there, there are lots of things. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But I'll, I'll keep my answer relatively brief. One is that if you're, a relatively typical sleeper, so you don't have any sort of overt sleep disorder, then that's when the devices are most likely to be helpful. And even if the devices aren't accurate, if you look at the long-term trend in your data, let's say over a rolling seven-day period, then you can probably learn something about your sleep that way. And personally, I would probably just look at things like sleep duration, sleep timing, and sleep efficiency, the proportion of time that someone's in bed that they're actually asleep. When looking at these seven-day blocks of data, and 
another related comment it's just that people don't need to always do this there might just be certain periods in which you think i don't feel so well recovered as usual and i wonder if that's because of my sleep i'm gonna put on one of these devices temporarily track my sleep and try and get it going in the right direction again now with that said you asked about the utility of the recommendations that the devices give I can't speak well to that just because I myself only have a Fitbit. And I gave some examples there, the Dream 2, the Apple Watch, ResMed S Plus, Apple Bed, and so on. And I wasn't picking those out because I think they're the best devices. I don't think they are. I actually think that the Fitbits probably remain the best studied devices of the different consumer ones that are out there. I think they all have advantages and disadvantages. So you really need to find one that makes sense for you. But I think because of that, I can't say which devices give the best recommendations based on your data. Now, with that proviso out the way, what I would say is that the thing that in my mind has particular promise is taking one of these manufacturers and then working in conjunction with say an app developer who can collect other context specific information about somebody's life their health behaviors their exposures and so on integrate that with the continuous data that are coming in from the wearable and then use that to give personalized real-time guidance to help shape health behaviors appropriately and the important bit here is context specificity. Because let's say, for example, that 10 minutes to the hour, every hour, your Fitbit vibrates and says, you haven't taken 250 steps in the last hour. It's time to get up and be physically active. After three hours of that, you become completely desensitized to it. And instead, a better approach, which is hard to enact, is to try and understand where somebody is in physical space what they're experiencing and then to try and give them very timely notifications so that during states of opportunity in which there's a chance for the person to act in a healthy way you can nudge them towards making that healthy choice during states of vulnerability at which somebody is prone to making a bad health decision Somebody who's a heavy drinker walks past an off-license at 7 p.m. and thinks, oh, I might pick up a six-pack of beer, that is. If they can give someone a notification at that point to remind that person of a strategy they can use to prevent that happening, then that's the way that the devices have the most potential in my mind. But... I think the, the apples of the world in particular, and maybe Fitbit now they've been acquired by Google, they have such big budgets, such large data sets, that there is a massive amount of potential for those companies. I just think that right now, they're missing a trick in that they're not working with, say, behavior change experts, so behavioral scientists, to actually work out how they can get people to make better health decisions. Because while self-monitoring and giving people feedback can be helpful, again, depending on the context, there are dozens of behavior change strategies that can be helpful. 
and the ones that are most helpful depend on the circumstances. I really like that answer as ever, uh, nice and nuanced. And there was one thing that reminded me, I think my Fitbit may have had an alarm on it when I was like due to go to bed within like 10 minutes. Like it was like, I put in my normal bedtime and it's just buzzes me at like 10 to kind of encouraging me not to watch another episode of Netflix or something, I guess something like that. And just, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this um, app, Greg, there's one called D-Minder, which is kind of like a, it gives you, depending on your location, kind of how much time you need to spend outside to get sufficient vitamin D for the day or something like that. I was thinking it'd be great if like, I don't know, my Fitbit gave me a buzz. It's like, if you can get outside for half an hour now, you've got your vitamin D for the day or something, <laughs> something like that. I That sort of integration I think would be great. Obviously not completely like you might be in the middle of a podcast or a meeting or something, but I don't know, things like this, I can definitely see that. Yeah, yeah, I have heard of the app. I haven't used it. When you said D-Minder, I was originally thinking D-E and then Minder. So something's to do with sort of trying to remove your your consciousness or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that comes back to the point that combining different data streams could be really helpful. Weather has a really strong bearing on physical activity. If you live on the West Coast of America in San Diego and it's hot and sunny and dry, you're more likely to be outside much of the time. So you're more likely to be physically active than if you're in Manchester and it lamps it down 355 days of the year. Yeah, I know. I mean, only I, all my clients are the same. They're like, oh, I did a bit more activity this week because the weather's been great or the weather was crap. So my steps are down or what have you. So it's, yeah, completely true. Uh, should we get to the next question? Yeah. Cool. So the next question is, why do I still feel tired and groggy after seven to nine hours of sleep? The reason is something known as sleep inertia. And it's not actually that well understood, but basically what happens is some features of sleep seem to persist into awakening. So if you look, for example, at blood flow in the brain, then it takes a while after sleep for blood flow to return to normal waking levels. If you look at patterns of electrical activity in the brain during sleep, then during this sleep inertia period, there might be higher delta activity, which is the type of activity we see during deep sleep, and lower beta activity, which is the, the type of activity that you see during wakefulness, than later on when you are wide awake. And interestingly, while people historically have spoken about sleep being best modeled by way of two processes, which we discussed once on the podcast, Steve, but the two processes are the sleep process and the circadian process, process S and process C. There's probably a third process that is also relevant to sleep-wake regulation, and that's variably been called process I or process W, and that describes the sleep inertia phenomenon. So just briefly, the longer that you've been awake each day, the greater the pressure there is to sleep. And that is process S, the sleep process or sleep homeostasis. The reason being that your body tries to defend the amount of sleep that it gets in total. 
in the same way that your body tries to defend its body weight and it tries to defend your blood pressure or your body temperature tries to defend its sleep and then the other process is that circadian process basically what happens is during wakefulness more and more pressure to sleep that gets counterbalanced by a rising circadian wakefulness drive and then around the time that you typically go to sleep each evening there's a sudden drop in that circadian wakefulness drive no longer opposes that pressure to sleep so now you've got all this pressure to sleep with little drive to be awake hence you fall asleep you then sleep through the night during sleep you pay off that sleep process and then you should wake the next day with both very little pressure to sleep and therefore little need to have a drive to be awake so process c and process s at the start of each day will be low what actually happens is that the time that you wake up each day, all of a sudden, this process I or process W that describes sleep inertia comes along and leads to that grogginess. And then that process rapidly dissipates. And you might experience that type of grogginess for, for over an hour, sleep inertia can hang around for. It depends on various things. And it actually seems to interact with that circadian process and the sleep process such that if you get woken up during the biological nighttime when you want to be asleep, you're more likely to have that sleep inertia. If you get woken up during a deeper stage of sleep, slow wave sleep, you're more likely to experience that type of sleep inertia. And I think a lot of people will have experienced this during, say, waking early to go to an airport for a flight. But it also seems to interact with the sleep process too, in that if for a period of a few days you've restricted your sleep, because you're really busy at work, say, and you've spent just six hours in bed per night and you normally spend eight hours in bed per night, you then try and catch up on sleep on Friday night and you spend 10 hours in bed. That type of irregularity, and because you've now got all that pressure to sleep from having restricted your sleep, will tend to create more sleep inertia than you would normally have, which is why people find it weird that Sometimes they wake up on, on Saturday after a long sleep and they feel really groggy. And I think, what is that about? I've, I've just been through days and days and days of restricting my sleep and I felt okay. And now after a long sleep, I feel knackered. That's sleep inertia. And then the other thing I'll mention is that it seems to be that some people with mood disorders experience more sleep inertia than the rest of us. So if you have poor mental health, let's say that you're experiencing depression, maybe you're more prone to sleep inertia than others would be. And the question is, what, what can you do about that? And it's not well understood. So even brief naps, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, will pay off much of that pressure to sleep. And if your nap is inappropriate in its duration, let's say that it's 40 minutes and you therefore enter deep sleep, then you're going to experience some sleep inertia off the back of that. In the context of napping, if you have some caffeine shortly before the nap, then you reduce the sleep inertia following it. So let's say that you have a coffee, straight after that you have a nap, the caffeine hasn't kicked in yet, you then have a 20-minute nap. At that point, caffeine is starting to kick in and will pretty much get rid of any sleep inertia that you otherwise would have experienced. But obviously that's not practical in many settings. Other things that might be helpful are 
light intensity physical activity. The reason being that that tends to promote brain blood flow. So it can restore your blood flow closer to normal waking levels. Another one that might be handy is listening to music. Not well studied, but there seems to be an effect. Can't think of any downside to that. Another one is bright light exposure. And I think that's probably a good thing to do regardless. And then finally, related to my comments earlier about body temperature regulation, cooling the extremity, so cooling your hands, cooling your feet might be helpful in this context. That might have some alertness promoting effects. And the reason being just that when the temperature of the skin at your extremities, your hands and your feet is higher, people tend to feel more drowsy. Those two things tend to go hand in hand. So if you can cool them down rapidly, then there are reasons to think that that could help reduce sleep inertia, but that hasn't been proven in an experiment to my knowledge. It just makes sense mechanistically. Again, no real downside to it. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. It's so funny, this question, because I, I hear it all the time. And I imagine you do as well, Greg, where it's that individual who says they feel worse after sleeping for more time. And I imagine that's kind of frustrating in some ways for you because it's a case of probably the sleep inertia that's kicking in for them. Uh, it sounds like they need to go for a walk. I'm thinking kind of wearing their thongs, go for a walk, wear some, wear some headphones, go listen to some music, get some bright light, and they're, they're sorted for the day. I, I know that I used to do that at one point uh, when I wasn't nine floors up <laughs> in a flat. Um, <laughs> now I just take like Ada down for a very quick one. But being able to do that walk in the morning and then come back and work, that actually set me up really nicely. So I, I'd quite like to have that back in a routine, actually. It sounds yeah. get rid of that inertia. When you didn't have COVID-19, when you weren't. <laughs> True, Just also this. Doing laps of your flat like a hamster in its <laughs> wheel. Um, no, awesome. So should we get to another question? Do you think you've got time to answer another one? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So the next question is, how do, how do I wake up at a specific time whilst minimizing detrimental effects of alarm clock use? It's an interesting one. And... I think that people's patterns of light exposure are very relevant here. There is a scientist at Stanford named Jamie Zeitzer. He's done a lot of interesting work on this in the last few years. And counterintuitively, he's found that very brief pulses of light seem to be very effective at shifting your body's clock. And as an example of this, he published some work a couple of years ago, looking at adolescents, many of whom struggle to get enough sleep because their body's clock have shifted late during adolescence and they have to be up at six for school in the morning. And as a result of that, after falling asleep at midnight, they only get six hours of sleep or less. So is there a strategy that you can use to shift your sleep earlier, prolong the sleep period and then feel better? And what he found was that combined with some elements of CBTI, Administering very brief, so three millisecond long, just you know, barely detectable, if detectable at all, pulses of light through a device during the last two to three hours of sleep could shift their body's clocks earlier 
and prolong the amount of sleep they get each night by nearly an hour, which would certainly be meaningful over time. So taking that same principle, if you're struggling because you have to wake up to an alarm in the morning and you don't want to be jarringly awoken using a conventional alarm, then one strategy that certainly might be helpful is using a sunrise alarm clock. And there was some work published not long ago looking at medical students, finding that that coupled with reducing screen time shortly before bed improved their sleep duration, sleep quality, and how they felt. So if you get something like, and I'm, I'm not recommending a specific brand, but I just know that Lumi make them. I know Philips make yeah. lots of them too. If you get something like that, give that a go, have that come on shortly in anticipation of when you intend to wake up, let's say that's half an hour before, then you might find that the light exposure from that device naturally starts to wake you up around that time. And over time could shift your body's clock a little bit earlier too. No real downside in doing that, I don't think. And then another option would be to shift your body's clock earlier. We've spoken a bit about this previously, but by doing that, you prolong your sleep opportunity, meaning that you can get more total sleep. And the way that you would shift your clock earlier would be, you could try and be systematic about this. You could think, well, I need to be up at 7 a.m. I need to have seven hours of sleep per night. To get that, I need eight hours in bed per night. Based on that, I need to be falling asleep at, or I need to be going to bed at about 11 p.m. the previous evening. The problem is I only feel sleepy at midnight. So I need to shift my clock earlier by about an hour so that I feel sleepy at 11 p.m. The way that I do that is by getting outside into daylight within two hours of waking up for at least half an hour, if possible. And if the sun isn't up at that time, let's say that you live at a high latitude and it's winter, then you can use a bright light therapy lamp, get one that emits at least 10,000 lux. Again, use it for at least half an hour. You probably want it within a meter or so of you. And then otherwise, exercising early in the day can help shift your clock earlier. So doing some physical activity at that time. Cutting caffeine, especially late in the day, as we discussed previously, is bound to be helpful. Avoiding light late at night. And if I was going to put a number on that, you probably want to try and reduce your exposure to light in, in the two to four hours before your planned bedtime. So if it's 11 p.m., then between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., you want to systematically reduce your exposure to light. And then still only go to bed when you're actually sleepy. And then the other thing I'll say is that there are these devices that supposedly wake people up from light stages of sleep and thereby can reduce sleep inertia and make them feel better so that when they wake to the alarm in the morning, they don't feel awful. And the validity of those devices is currently questionable they just haven't been well tested there are popular apps i know there's sleep cycle isn't there steve yeah and they supposedly wake you up from one of the light stages of non-rem sleep ideally but i think you could try those i just don't know how well they work at the moment there are also other wearables and nearables that supposedly do that so for example the resmed s plus which is one of the nearables i mentioned has that function so you could, you could go about it that way too, but give it a go. 
I just don't know how well it will work. So I, I wouldn't put it in my recommendations. It might be something that's worth dabbling with. Cool. Fantastic. I know we've got one more question. Do you think we can cover that? I think we should probably get it done. <laughs> I, I, I think we get it done. Yeah. <laughs> and then we can, we'll get another one of these bad boys going in the future. So the final question, again, related to earlier questions, um, is how can I improve REM sleep? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And my, my question and response would be, why, why do you want to improve it? And that's not me being flippant. There are various reasons why you would want to improve it. So one would be if you had, say, some sort of REM-related parasomnia. An example of this would be REM sleep behavior disorder in which during REM sleep, while the spinal cord should be involved in paralyzing most of your muscles so you don't act out your dreams, that paralysis no longer takes place and people end up acting out their dreams, which can be entertaining, but it can also be very problematic. And in some instances, it's even been fatal. So, so there could be one of those reasons. I won't address that though. Another REM-related parasomnia is nightmare disorder. And I'll touch on that just because I think it is quite common, especially now there's some evidence that Nightmares have increased in prevalence during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then another question that I'd ask is, well, if you're going to improve your REM sleep, what, what would that look like? And for a lot of people, that would just be getting more sleep. Because as I mentioned, the proportion of our sleep that is REM increases over the sleep period. So for a given sleep cycle, get more REM later in the night or earlier in the morning than you do at the start of the night. And so what that means is that to reap the benefits of REM, you need to spend enough time in bed. You need to avoid waking to an alarm ideally. So one of the advantages of the COVID pandemic is that a lot of us have more control over our sleep schedules. More of us are sleeping in, but then one byproduct of that is that a lot of people have experienced so-called COVID dreams, which are especially vivid dreams, and then some people have experienced nightmares too. And then it's also possible to use specific techniques to leverage the beneficial effects of REM sleep on things like emotion regulation and creativity. And there's also a whole category of people who are just fascinated by dream work, so trying to explore their dreams and understand them. Maybe they want to do some lucid dreaming just because it's fun. And I think that's fine. And, and as I'll get to learning to do that definitely has some potential therapeutic value in some circumstances. So what I'll just mention is a few strategies that are helpful based on what I just said. So first with respect to nightmares, there are some really simple things that people who have nightmares regularly will probably already know. So one is that there are different types of nightmares. You could have nightmares because you have PTSD or you could have nightmares for some other reason. And I just briefly mentioned some of the biology of nightmares. During REM sleep, if you look at the neurochemicals in your brain, then you should see certain changes that take place. So typically a brain chemical known as acetylcholine, which is important to things like learning, will be high, but serotonin and noradrenaline will be low. 
And what can happen during nightmares is that noradrenaline starts to climb. And as people know, noradrenaline is an alertness promoting neurochemical that tends to make you feel quite agitated. And when those brain changes take place, what might happen is people who have nightmares experience distressing dreams, and then the high levels of noradrenaline ultimately wake them up from those dreams. The problem with that is that when that takes place, your brain no longer is able to process the strong emotions that you experience during that nightmare through REM sleep because the REM sleep is broken up. So it's a bit like playing a record using an old player and reaching the same point in the track each time and the needle popping out of the groove on the record every time you get to that same point. That's what happens in nightmares. So the question is, can you do something to prevent that? And chemically, you can. There, there's a alpha-1 adrenoreceptor antagonist named prazosin that's used for that, that, that seems to be quite helpful. I'm, I'm not recommending that, but it does help some people who have nightmares to, to get over them. But then there are things that you can do behaviorally that seem to be pretty much side-effect-free. So first, obviously, you want to recognize that stress will tend to promote nightmares. Our, our waking experiences strongly influence our dream content. So you want to try and limit your exposure to stress during the day. So that could be reducing your exposure to things that you find triggering, such as negative news about the pandemic. Another would be when you wake up during the night, use some sort of relaxation exercise. So a lot of the time people would recommend deep breathing at this time, simple but effective. But the therapy that's commonly used and that probably has the best evidence base behind it is known as imagery rehearsal therapy. And it has a couple of key components. So, so one is about cognitive restructuring and recognizing that nightmares over time can contribute to insomnia. And there are things that you can do about it. And those things basically encompass the following. So first, if you have some sort of nightmare that regularly crops up, then you want to select that nightmare and spend some time thinking about changing the course of that nightmare. So you might sit down with a pen and paper and basically rewrite the nightmare so that Maybe it starts the same way, that it then takes on a positive course. And what you would do is you would subsequently practice rehearsing that new dream for maybe five to 15 minutes per day and only rehearsing that, not rehearsing the nightmare. And a lot of people find that over time, the nightmare will change its course. And that will not only have that positive effect on your sleep, but it probably also has some beneficial actions on daytime function too. So how you feel, your mood and so on. So that would probably be the recommended therapy in that instance. And then there are lots of forms of dream work that exist. I mentioned lucid dreaming earlier. It's fascinating. I don't need to say that. I think we all recognize that. And one of the cool things about lucid dreaming is that it's becoming more and more clear that you can use it therapeutically as well. 
And just briefly, lucid dreaming, as I'm sure you know, is when you become aware that you're dreaming within a dream. I think some people assume that to be a lucid dream, you have to be able to take control of your dreams. That's not the case. For something to be a lucid dream, you just need to be aware that you are dreaming. And then some people over time can learn to control those dreams and shape their course to and have a great time in doing so. And the reason that this takes place is not that well understood, but it's probable that during lucid dreaming, parts of the brain that are involved in consciousness have wake-like activity, whereas other parts of the brain, so say the motor cortex, which is involved in movement and so on, are sleeping. And that raises an important point, which is that there are many instances in which some parts of the brain are sleeping and other parts are awake. So think of sleepwalking, for example. Some parts of the brain fast asleep, motor cortex, wide awake. What happens? You're asleep and you're moving around. Now, with that said, how might lucid dreaming be helpful? What might it be helpful for? One condition, unsurprisingly, based on what I just said, is PTSD. Another is insomnia. And Jason Ellis from Northumbria University published a really interesting study on this subject last year and took people who have insomnia, but also have comorbid anxiety and depression and took them through a simple two week long lucid dreaming training exercise. And the protocol they used is, is typical of most lucid dreaming protocols. Basically, what it comprised was in the first week teaching the people about sleep, how it's regulated, some of those things that we've discussed today, the different stages of sleep that we experience, the two process model and so on. And then during this time, the people also kept a dream diary with almost all forms of dream work that people will do. So whether it's using dreams to promote creativity or changing the motion regulation, keeping a dream diary is, is a commonality to many of them. And while keeping a dream diary, you just want to keep your diary and a pen or pencil by your bedside. When you wake up, keep your eyes closed for a little bit and try and remember as much of your dream as possible. And then note as many details of your dream as possible shortly thereafter. And by doing that, you'll get better over time at recalling your dreams. And then in the second week, they did a few things. So one was they started using what are known as reality checks. They set a timer on their smartphone, presumably to go off every hour. And when it went off, they simply paused, checked out their surroundings and asked themselves whether they are awake or asleep. And while doing this, you want to spend some time actually thinking carefully about it. What's just happened? What events have led me up to this point? And are there any incongruities that are taking on? So one thing that people might find helpful when doing this, for example, is you could take your palm and you could push your finger into your palm. And while I'm doing this right now, that's solid. I recognize I'm awake. If you do that in a dream, then a lot of the time your finger will just go straight through your palm. And then you just think, hmm, okay, I'm probably dreaming right now. So reality checks are a key component of this. Punch yourself. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> there, there are lots of them. So one would be switching the lights on and off. One would be looking at a clock. Clocks are often very distorted in dreams. And 
Then another technique they started using were affirmations. Really simple. When you go to bed at night, you want to tell yourself, I will lucid dream tonight. Sounds silly, but as I mentioned earlier, the, th the things that we think about, the things that are on our mind during waking life strongly influence our dream content. So those affirmations definitely have their place. Another thing that they did was use visualizations. They pictured the types of dreams that they wanted to have. And they did that while lying in bed as well. And then another technique that's often used is known as auto-suggestion, which sounds complicated, but it's not really. The idea here is that if you keep a dream diary, you'll notice that there are certain things that crop up in multiple dreams that are a bit weird. And what you can do is over time, you can learn to identify those in dreams. And if you do that, you can then recognize that you're probably dreaming and use that to cue a lucid dream. And so by working out what those incongruities are, you can then start to apply this auto-suggestion technique to cue lucidity. And what they found was that the number of people lucid dreaming did increase over time. Not dramatically, but a little bit. Again, this is a very short intervention. It's only two weeks long. But interestingly, they had a dramatic improvement in their insomnia severity. And they also experienced reductions in anxiety and depression, which makes sense because not only do our waking lives affect our dreams, our dreaming lives affect our waking lives, as anybody who has nightmares will know. So if you can make your dreams happier places in which to be, then you can probably make your days happier too. And that's exactly what they found here. And then the final thing I'll mention is that there are some medications and probably supplements too that can influence dreaming and REM sleep. And probably the most salient of these is the SSRI antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I mentioned earlier that during dreaming, serotonin is typically low. If you're using an SSRI, then you're reducing the reuptake of serotonin once it's been released into a synapse. So you've got more serotonin in the synaptic left, so you've got more serotonergic signaling, and you're therefore going to reduce your rapid eye movement sleep. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. And obviously these can, in some instances, I'm, I'm not keen to overpraise them because they certainly have their shortcomings, but they can be even life-saving for some people. So I just want to add that there are some instances in which people do things that actually negatively affect their REM sleep, but ultimately have some, some positive therapeutic effects too. It's fascinating, actually. I don't, I don't think I've really ever thought that much about lucid dreaming and what that... It's like a phrase I've heard, but never really contemplated. And even personally thinking about how often am I aware that I'm dreaming? I always think when I get aware, that's when I wake up. So <laughs> I don't know if that's a common thing. Yeah, about, about half of people have yeah. experienced a lucid dream at some point in their lives. I'm like you, Steve. I, I have them from time to time. I'm actually going to do some lucid dreaming training at some point soon. Just Very interesting. Shit, for shits and giggles. But I probably have them a couple of times a month on average, something like that. But most of the time when I become lucid, the dream ends shortly thereafter, which is frustrating. And during lucid dreaming, you're always walking a tightrope between staying lucid and 
wakefulness. I wonder if that might have been the case. I I imagine you're not a Netflix subscriber, are you, Greg? Or are you? My girlfriend is. Okay. So, so yeah, yeah, we have it. It reminds me of something that I don't know when it came out, but it was a few months ago. It was a series called Behind Her Eyes, and I think it was some of the concepts used there, obviously taken to a big extreme because these weren't just like lucid dreams they were actually able to like do stuff in real life but be asleep it was a bit strange but it's reminded me big time of this of this series so if anyone's listening who has seen that maybe you'll uh, be thinking like me but greg this has been fantastic i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to kind of uh, the rem sleep discussion or if you're happy that that's been covered i think i think that's fine for the time being i'm just happy that we got to the end of those first podcast questions so we'll be definitely collecting some more at some point we're going to give greg a bit of a breather because as you can tell uh he's done his research i mean he knows his stuff anyway but uh he's wanted to make sure that these were incredibly comprehensive and i think everyone can agree that they absolutely were so definitely give greg a massive thank you definitely be following greg again um greg for the listeners where should they check you out if they want to learn more about you and what you're up to don't don't check me out check out resilient nutrition (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is resilientnutrition.com at resilient nuts but yeah my personal social media is at greg potter phd not really active on twitter anymore more active on instagram so yeah feel free to ping me on there perfect and again i think we said last time but on the resilient nutrition blog uh, sorry on their website there is a blog with more kind of educational content. So uh, Greg certainly knows his stuff about a lot of different subject matter. So I definitely would recommend going, at least checking that out and then yeah, checking out what they're doing over there. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Greg, once again, and we'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another, a really cool community for people within our little niche. It's going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.